0: I'm sitting there, and um, I don't know that I can preach sitting down on a stool, so I'm going to try, and if I have to sit, you'll have to um, excuse me for that. Uh, I would like to start today with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I am super excited to uh, be standing here uh, under your authority before your word and share Uh, the gospel message uh, with your people. Uh, My back is uh, distracting and um, there's lots going on, so I pray for an extra measure of your grace uh, for me, the preacher, and for uh, the people here, the hearers. Holy Spirit, speak to us deep in our hearts and meet us exactly where we're at. And we pray that you would reveal yourself as strong and mighty and able to save. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Uh, This is in many ways a continuation of last week's sermon on suffering. And today the message is called Redemption and the Gospel. Uh, This is a word that I think our secular society has even uh, adopted as their own. And they speak about things and situations and stories and people being redeemed. And so I want us to think about what that means. The basic summary of today's talk is that only God can change us. And this change process by which we are saved is called redemption. It is God's title that He is our Redeemer. He is able to redeem us and His work in us is towards redemption. Uh, And I think Matthew 26, uh, what Robin read for us today, is a glimpse into sort of uh, behind-the-scenes work at how God does this redeeming work. My sermon feedback team uh, that uh, give me official feedback for each sermon that I give uh, suggested that I... Name the points of my talk before I, do the, before I go into it. So the three points are in the form of questions. And the three questions are, why did Peter weep bitterly? Why did Jesus have to die? And what do we do now? Okay, Why did Jesus weep bitterly? Verse 20, uh, 75 says that Peter was weeping bitterly. Bitterly, And this word weeping in the Greek is the word for not just crying or shedding tears, but it has this connotation of anguish. And it's reserved in the New Testament for times when people are crying for the dead. It's about as strong as tears get. And not only is Peter weeping as for the dead, but he's also weeping bitterly. And this word bitterly in the Greek is a word that means violently. So here Peter is weeping as for the dead. And not only is he weeping strongly, but he is violently weeping. Now, um, when I was studying this uh, verse, I was thinking about, I was picturing myself weeping and crying just from my gut, just uncontrollably. You know, unable to control myself or remain poised, but just the anguish of life coming through me in the form of tears. And the first question I had was, is Peter angry at Jesus? Is this bitter weeping about his own anger? Did he feel like it was unfair for Jesus to quote-unquote, predict that he's going to do this? Was Peter a victim of what we would call predestination, that God himself predestined for Peter to uh, deny Christ? I mean, Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He was very specific. And sure enough, before the rooster crowed, Peter denied Jesus exactly exactly. Three times. Who can escape the sovereignty of God? Did Peter feel like a victim? Was Peter blaming God for his own denials? Or maybe he was surprised at his denials? Was he angry at himself? And I think the painful lesson that Peter is learning here And answering the question, beginning to answer the question, why did Peter weep bitterly? I think partly he was weeping because at that moment he began to realize that the denial was always in him. I don't think Peter was surprised at all when he found himself denying Christ. You know, Peter was uh, sort of an action oriented guy. You know, he's the one who took out the sword and cut off a uh, servant's ear. He was the one who first exclaimed, I will never deny you, even if all my inferior brothers here deny you, not me. I think what he realized was that all those acts, of, acts and words of bravery were actually his denial behavior. He knew he was about to deny Christ. He knew that he was a fearful man. He knew that this denial was in him. And so he was compensating. Do you know human beings do this? We often compensate for things we know on a deep, maybe even a subconscious level. Those words of bravery, those acts of bravery were already indicating that he was about to deny Christ and I think this is the really painful truth that he was realizing. That sin is resident in him. Sin was always in him, living in him. It's part of who he is. It's, it's intertwined with his very nature. And this was what was so painful for him. That this denial didn't just come out of nowhere. But it came from within. Within. And so I think maybe a better word than prediction is description. That Jesus wasn't so much as predicting what Peter was going to do, but he was describing what was already in Peter's heart. He was describing Peter's character. Luke chapter 22 verse 61 is Luke's account of this moment when the rooster crows. And it says this, Then the Lord, referring to Jesus, turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Can you imagine this? You had just, that very same night, sworn your life to this person. And not just for himself, but in But against all odds, even if everybody else was going to deny you, I'm not going to do it. These very words fell from his lips this night. And then at that moment when the rooster crows, Jesus also hears the rooster. It was their form of, I think, maybe uh, sending a text message. The rooster crowed and they both instantly knew. And so Jesus looks across the courtyard. And Peter looks across the courtyard to Jesus and their eyes meet. You got to use your imagination here. What is going on inside Peter at that very moment? Can you imagine your eyes meeting the eyes of the one you just finished denying for the third time? When the rooster crowed, Peter's weeping began because he realized that Jesus knew all along that the denial was in him. At that moment, Jesus knew that now Peter knew that Jesus knew all along. At that moment when the rooster crowed, Peter knew that now Jesus knew that Peter knew that Jesus knew all along. You know what that moment is called? It's called clarity. It's called a come-to-Jesus moment. It's when all darkness is confronted and confounded by light. Everything's out on the table. It's out in the open. Jesus knows everything. And now Peter realizes Jesus had always known everything. All those acts and words of bravery... He was compensating, and Jesus knew. This is what often redemption looks and feels like. Redemption is the economy and power of God at work within us. That God is using anything and everything in our lives... To save us. What did Peter learn? I think he learned a few things. One, he learned that we are sinners not because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. This is the age old chicken and the egg question which came first, the sin or the sinner? And I want to suggest to you that you and I, we sin because we are already sinners. The evil, the darkness is already within us. It's resident in us. It lives in us. We could be handed a perfect world without a single blemish and we will sin. And that's In large part, what the whole Adam and Eve story proves, that handed a perfect world, they sinned. And this is really a hard pill for me to swallow because it's convenient for me to blame my circumstances. I want to blame you. I want it to be your fault then I can be blameless. Then I can be innocent. I can legitimately play the victim card. And ultimately, I don't have to be responsible. I don't have to own my sin. I just have to say, it's you, not me. I went through a personal, uh, what theologians call a dark night of the soul as a junior in college. It was the key, pivotal, saving, redemptive moment for me. I um, I was an avid journal writer, and um, I had written uh, you know entries in it almost every day, and it was this very thick book and filled you know in very small penmanship handwriting. Handwriting is what we do with pens and pencils, you guys. Some of you uh, younger folks um, don't know what that is. But it's what we used to do before the keyboard was uh, around. And so I had this journal, and I was going through a very dark time. And I remember uh, I was rereading this journal up uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan near Lake Huron. And just the night before, I had seen the Northern Lights, and it was this very spiritual moment. And I was reading this journal, and I could not stand the person that I was in these journals. And so in this dramatic moment, I took my journal and I flung it into uh, Lake Huron. And then early in the morning, I went back to, this, uh, back to this beach, and I found that the journal had actually washed up ashore, and it was just right there, uh, back on sand. So I grabbed this journal, and I went over to this room while everybody was still asleep, and I started a fire. And then I threw my journal in there, but it wouldn't burn because it was wet. And I had forgotten to open the flue, so the room started filling with black smoke. And I thought, I remember thinking, why can't I just get rid of my sin? And this, this whole incident just was a, a symbolic moment for me of my sheer inability to wash myself clean not even in Lake Huron, not even under northern lights. It's not possible. Sin is who we are. A second lesson that Peter learned is that there is absolutely no surprise in what we do. I like to act surprised, but I realize after just a few moments that that was already in me. And that if I was attentive enough, I can see and trace the very steps that led me to the moment of sin. You know, this is sort of an interesting phenomenon this idea of being surprised at ourselves when we mess up. Because those of us who know us and who are around us, they're never surprised. They think, oh, Peter, he's just, that's him. He's like that. And so here's the lesson. If it happens once, maybe it's their fault. If it happens twice, that means it's a pattern. And if it's a pattern, then it's also about you. This is a pattern in Peter's life. Even this moment wasn't sufficient. Do you know, after he finished denying Jesus, he goes on to help found the New Testament church And then he begins to deny the gospel such that it forced his very good friend, the apostle Paul, to confront him publicly and accuse him him of denying the gospel. That's in Galatians. This is a deeply ingrained pattern in Peter's life. He is a coward. He's a fearful man. He has these moments when he's able to say, you be the judge, whether I should fear you or fear God, but I cannot help but speak what I have seen and what I have heard. Standing up against the authorities in that manner. And then right after he does that, he denies the very gospel he was preaching. Sin is not just who we are, but it's also what we do. third lesson that he learned looking back I can see that my junior year was a climax of God's work in my life in terms of salvation there was for me revelation connections being made there was uh, a naming of deep deep trust issues that I had that stemmed from a traumatic childhood that is my story and I realized that lots and lots of people have sinned against me. That there is wrong done, not just by me, but also against me. And so he learned that sin is not just who he is or what he does, but it is also what has been done to him. And so here you and I are, sin within us, and we're acting this sin out, And not just towards ourselves, but against each other. We're surrounded by sin inside and out. And here I want to invoke the second law of thermodynamics. Do you know anybody know what the second law of thermodynamics is? It states that everything tends towards chaos. That a room doesn't get clean by itself that relationships don't repair themselves, that your character doesn't get better by itself. Everything is tending towards something that's worse. Things are not getting better. It's getting worse. And nothing and no one can change or help us because we are all afflicted with the same disease. And in fact, if we try to change each other or even help each other it has the exact opposite effect it's called friction you push somebody they push you back this is the story of humanity that we love darkness that god looked upon this world and he saw that no one is good no not one When I think about this and I think about who I am and what I have done and what has been done to me, I realize that I begin to shrink in hope. I'm so tempted to believe that change is not possible. Well, maybe I can change, but surely my wife can't change. She's been this way forever. I am tempted to lose all hope for myself and others. Where is the hope? Where is the good news? And now we get to our second question. Why did Jesus have to die? The Apostle Paul talking about this cycle of sin and death that you and I are caught up in. He says, but thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I have come to believe that it doesn't pay to hope in myself or to hope in other people. It doesn't pay to hope in our government. It doesn't, it doesn't pay to hope in our system of education. It can only get us so far. But where is the good news? And I think the good news is wrapped up in the death of Jesus Christ. And this is what the scriptures call salvation, that there is no hope apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Do you know what the word save means? It literally means a change in direction. That I am headed over not just this fiscal cliff, but just over this cliff of life. That because of who I am and what I have done and what others have done to me, I am headed in this one very certain direction. These are the consequences of being human and living on this planet. And there is no hope of changing direction. But salvation is there is an outside intervention that comes in and changes the direction in which I am headed. And the word that explains the process by which I am saved is the word redemption. The Greek word literally means to pay off a debt, particularly in the marketplace, and it was primarily used towards the redemption of slaves. Back in the day when you had a debt, that means that you are a slave to this person until this debt is paid that your life was now theirs to command and not yours anymore. And if you had a redeemer, this redeemer would come. They would pay the price that you owe and they would redeem you. They would buy you back and change the direction that your life is headed. Romans 8.28 says, Not all things are good. Many things are bad. But that God uses all things to work together for the good. Do you know this? That there is such a thing as evil in our world? If you forgot about it this week, you should at least remember that senseless, meaningless evil happens, it just happens. You know, I don't know if I'm going to hear this, but every time I hear this, I cringe. I don't know if I'm going to hear it as a result of the news story that I'm referring to, which I assume you all know about. I hear people say all the time, and each and every time I cringe when people say this, they say, I believe everything happens for a reason. I want you to know everything does not happen for a reason. In fact, I think... Most things don't happen with any good reason. Evil happens in our world. It was not the will of God. It is not God's desire. It is not the design of God. It is not the purpose of God for evil to happen, but it happens. Most things happen without reason. But, but, this is the beautiful New Testament word, but God. It is God who says, all things are not good. In fact, most things are evil. But in my power and in my economy, I will use all things towards the good. I will use things in your life to work towards the good. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of senselessness. There's a lot of happenstance but I will redeem it all. I will buy it all back. That's God's job. That's God's title. That is the very power and work of God in our world. And I hope from today, if you can take away one thing, this would be it. That not everything happens for a reason. What this means is that Lots of times we experience a good outcome, but that does not prove that it was God's will. It does not prove that you made a good decision or you did something that's righteous. All that proves is that God is powerful and able to work good out of anything and everything. It speaks not to our righteousness or to some... uh, Some mechanism that's been set in place in which good things come out of bad. But it is God intentionally intervening to work good, to excavate good out of bad things that happen all around us. Which leads to a very important question in my mind. And the question is Does God know the future? Did God know that shootings were going to happen? And my, and I, as, a, as a student of theology and as a, a pastor, I've really wrestled with this question. And I'm happy to tell you what we have not been able to solve as a church for the last 2,000 years. I'm going to solve for you today. <laughs> I'm serious about this. I'm going to give you an answer I think is going to be very, very satisfying. Does God know the future? And my answer is, at some point, He does. You know, I remember hearing a story about a party that uh, a young man went to, and somebody decided to bring a gun to this party, and there was a shooting, and he got shot. But Perchance, he happened to be wearing his older brother's belt. And perchance, he happened to get shot right where the big belt buckle was. And so the bullet never entered him. The belt buckle stopped the bullet. Now, does God know the future? Well, maybe... You know, theologians have argued, well, God didn't know that that was going to happen. And some say, well, God knew that was going to happen. That's why he was wearing the belt buckle. And I say, well, at some point, God knew the future. Maybe right when the gun was being fired, he knew that where the bullet was headed. He must understand physics. And he knows how, you know, bullets work and how guns work and how angles work. And he understands physics. Therefore, at some point, God knew the future. And so that's an irrelevant question for me. Here's the truth. It doesn't matter if God knows the future or not. Because God is all powerful. And at any moment, God can do anything he wants. By definition, that's what God is. He can do anything he wants at any moment. And God is not dependent on some knowledge about the future in order to be able to do it. I don't know about you, but for me, a God that is dependent on some external knowledge about some future he apparently doesn't have control over, is less powerful than a God for whom foreknowledge is irrelevant Because he is able to do anything and everything at any given moment, should he so choose to do it. This is what we call the sovereignty of God. That in the sovereignty of God, that is in his sheer power and ability, he is able to do whatever he wants to do or whatever he needs to do in order for good to come out of this situation. And so people ask, did God know about the shooting? Well, at some point he did. That's irrelevant because God is a redemptive God. He's able to work good out of anything and everything. I know that for me, when I'm in my present situation, I look at my life, I think about all the things that are happening and I'm confused about the sovereignty of God, about God's ability to redeem. But whenever I look back at my life, I am able with clarity to see the hand of God in my life. I'm able to see that he has been working towards the good in my life that he has been redeeming my life such that I'm not just a victim to the consequences of the sin in me or the sin that I act out or the sin that has been committed against me. But God triumphs over sin in my life. And how do we know that he is able to do this? And this is why our hope is in the cross. Because here Jesus is, the only innocent to be ever born. And he is crucified on a cross. And this instrument of death and has now become a symbol of life for us. And if God is able to turn this instrument of death into the symbol of life, then I can know for certain that he's able to work good out of anything in my life. God took the greatest evil that has ever been committed, that is the death of his son, and he's able to use it for the good. And that serves ha- as promise to me that God, who is sovereign, is able to do the very same thing in my life. This is why the Apostle Paul said says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. What this means is that the very same spirit that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave is at work in my life. And if God is able to save Jesus, He is able to save me. Lastly, What do we do now? If this redemption is true, if God is really able to work good out of anything and everything, what is our response? I have three responses for us. One, I want to invite some of you to weep personally. And what I mean by that is you need God's redemptive intervention in your life. I want to be clear on this. Romans 8.28 does not say that in all things God works for the good for everybody. Romans 8.28 says in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal redeemer, If God is not redeeming your life, you are headed in a certain direction. You will be the victim to your sin that is within you, to the sin that you are acting out, and to the sin that has been committed against you. These things, sin will have reign and power over your life. Good may or may not come from things in your life. This is a fact And so now I want to invite you to weep bitterly. Experience a salvation that Peter experienced. And come to God. Come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I realize now you knew already. You already knew all along who I was and who I am. You know my whole life story. And now you know that I know that you know. Have a come to Jesus moment. Secondly, I want to invite you to weep relationally. There are some of you in this room who are in the midst of broken relationships. And there is stubbornness and ego and bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment in these, in these relationships that you hold. I want to invite you to invite Jesus to redeem these relationships. And what that means, I think, is to say yes to forgiveness. Maybe make a phone call or write an email and say to someone, I feel like we've been carrying this for a long time, but I'm ready to say I'm sorry. I'm ready to talk things through. Check in with each other. Invite you to ask questions, to confess your sins and seek help. Third, I want to invite you as a church to weep corporately. I have been hired to bring about change in this church. And change, I realize, is extremely difficult for most of us. It's not something that we can readily do. Even if you claim that you are an exception to the rule and you actually love change, chances are you don't love change. Change feels like death. Change is often very painful. Just because you're amening change in somebody else's life doesn't mean that you love change for yourself necessarily. And I think Jesus wants us to weep Corporately, the image that I keep thinking about is the image of Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. I don't know if you know the story, but decades ago, Chuck Yeager was the first human being to ever break the sound barrier. And the reason, even though we had the equipment to be able to do it, the reason people could not break the sound barrier is because every time they approached the speed of sound or Mach 1. Their instruments would begin rattling, and then glass would literally start shattering because of all the rattling that was going on inside the plane. And so men would often just back off. But Czech Yeager once, at one point he decided, you know, I'm gonna go for it. And he put himself into an experimental plane called the X1. And he got, he rose up to about forty-four to forty-five thousand feet in altitude. And he decided to go for it. And his instruments started rattling, and glass literally broke. But he kept going. And he was able to break through the sound barrier. And the amazing thing was, once he was on the other side of the sonic boom, once he was past the speed of sound, he flew at Mach 1.4 on that day. Everything calmed down. There is no more rattling. There is nothing except peace, except him and the clear blue sky. This is what I imagine change is going to be like at our church, that as we continue to press into the year 2013 and we embrace God's mission and purpose and values for us, we're going to start rattling as a congregation. I cannot tell you how many people have asked me what we did with the big table in the sanctuary. I cannot tell you how many people have asked me why we keep changing the seats around. I could only imagine how many complaints I'm going to get if we change out the carpet or painted the sanctuary. What about if we change the structure of the church? What if we asked the members of the church to not park in the church parking lot? What if I asked all of us to take off our membership hat and put on our hosting hat, put on our usher hat and think of our church Sunday service gatherings not as something that we are entitled to experience but as a missional evangelistic opportunity? We're going to start rattling, aren't we? But I realized I don't care compared to God's call on my life. And I think there's going to be some sabotage and some resistance and some unhappy folks in this church, and including me. I don't want to go to two services. I certainly don't want to go to three. But probably in March, we will go to two services and probably by the fall, we will have three services. I don't want to do that. I want to invite you to weep corporately. To say yes. Now, let me conclude with a story. When I think about myself, and I try to put myself in a category, I would self Categorize uh, Peter Sung as an analytical sort of thinking person. But then when I think about my life story, I have lots of sort of mystical experiences in my life that I don't know what to do with. And I want to share with you a story of one of these mystical moments that I had uh, during a prayer time. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I had a pretty traumatic childhood And um, I think that all my life, I'm going to be recovering from the trauma of my childhood. I'll never get over it. And this will be a point of access for God in my life. But it was uh, during an intense uh, sort of healing time for me that I had this experience. I was in my third hour of prayer. And I can't imagine praying three hours straight now, but I did. I had a time when I was praying for hours at a time. And I was in the third hour of prayer, uh, intense prayer. And I was just sweating. And I remember there was just, I was just caught up. And I was uh, unaware of the room that I was in and the body that I inhabit. But I was sort of, felt lost in a moment outside of time and space. And um, I remember I saw God in my mind. And I don't know if it was my imagination or if it was something other uh, but I saw uh, God in my, uh, during my prayer time. And I pictured myself as a little, uh, maybe a six-year-old boy. And I had my face looking down. I had my arms spread out like this. And there were tears streaming down this little boy's face. And my arms are stretched out. And... In one hand, I was holding the hand of Jesus that I was seeing in my mind. And in the other hand, I was holding God's people. And I don't know how to describe it except it was people, but it was the earth. But it wasn't like the physical earth, it was people. And I'm holding this, uh, the God's people in my one hand. I'm holding Jesus' hand in the other. The next to me is standing Jesus. And he has this exact same look of anguish on his face. But he's not looking down like I was. But he's looking up, and he has this—he has both his arms stretched uh, out like this, also. And in one hand he's holding my hand, and in the other hand it's stretching up and it's touching the throne throne of God the Father up in heaven. And so maybe you can picture that with me. And then I hear Jesus speak. Okay, and this is in my mind. So. You can slice that up any way you want to. But this is exactly what I heard in quotes. In the same way, I had to become man and go through what you go through in order to reach you. I need you to go through what you go through in order to reach my people. And I got to tell you, at that moment, when I heard that, I opened my eyes. I returned to the room that I was originally praying in. And I would say like 95% of my anger and issues and frustrations just, it was gone. It was a moment of deep inner healing for me. In fact, so much so, that very same year, I was seeing a professional therapist, and I didn't know therapists can do this, but he said, Peter, I think we're done. And he ended his time with me, and he told me I was the best patient he's ever had. (laughs) What does it mean for God to redeem you? What life stories do you bring with you? In what ways do we need to embrace redemption as a church? In what ways does, do we need saving relationally? I want to invite you to think about this as we pray, and I want to forewarn you. I'm going to ask some of you to uh, publicly uh, make a decision. Would you bow your heads with me? And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If there are some of you in the room tonight who... Need a redeemer personally. Your life needs redemption. Your personality needs redemption. You need intervention and help. If that's you, I want to invite you to make a decision right now and say, Jesus, please be my redeemer. I invite you to save me. I want to weep bitterly. I want to have a come to Jesus moment. If that's you, would you stand up in your seats? Just stand where you are. Amen. I want to give you a couple more moments. Now, there's some of you in this room who are holding broken and hurting relationships. And you can't fix it, and they can't fix it. And you need Jesus to redeem this relationship. And you want to invite Jesus to do that. Would you stand? And lastly, there are some of you in this room who have been coming to church for a while now. And there's a part of you that feels entitled to things that you are used to, things that you prefer or like. And I promise as a pastor and leader, I will not use this as license to do whatever I want to do. But I want to join with you and say, I want to corporately say yes to the redemptive work of Jesus in this church. And I will release God to do whatever he wants to do because this is his church if that's you would you stand amen Jesus I want to bring these sisters and brothers of mine before you and Jesus I want to invite you to be their redeemer in church in relationships and in their personal life We need you. We need the power of the cross. We need the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to be in us. So Holy Spirit, I invite you to come. Be amongst us. Be in our midst. Be in us. And save us, we pray. Would you all stand and rise together as you proclaim God's amazing and redeeming love for us.